One thing that in academia that I couldn't achieve was the ability to truly help people now. And when the Silicon Valley started to call, I thought maybe this is the place I can actually learn to build something for people now. But we also wanted that leadership principle to remind the company: as you get larger, you're going to get more scrutiny. And if you operate in such a way that when the scrutiny comes, you'll feel proud of it, then you're going to probably be okay. A gut is a gut. Your gut is the same gut whether it's creatively or business-wise. The artist in my mind just thinks creative, and then there's this business part of my mind that kicks in and thinks budget. Welcome to the GeekWire podcast. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. This week, we're sharing a few highlights from the GeekWire Summit, our annual business and technology conference, which we held this week for an audience in Seattle and online. For online access to the full video of every GeekWire Summit 2021 session on demand, you can purchase a virtual ticket at geekwire.com summit to watch at your convenience. Coming up, new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy addresses questions about the company's impact on the world, and Grammy award-winning entertainer and entrepreneur Sierra discusses the parallels between the music industry and startups. But first, here's a highlight from Yoki Matsuoka, the computer scientist who is leading an independent Panasonic subsidiary called Yohana, which recently launched a personal assistant subscription service starting in Seattle. A former University of Washington professor and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award for her work in robotics, she went on to become a co-founder of the Google X Research and Development Organization and then a healthcare technology leader at Apple. I asked her about those experiences during the session. You ended up leaving academia and going down and working in Silicon Valley. What was that transition like for you? And how would you compare and contrast the experiences in these two places? Yeah, so I mean, it's I'm one of those people who just get really passionate about wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. So everything was great in a way. Like Carnegie Mellon was an amazing place to meet with all this faculty and the University of Washington. The lack of boundary between engineering and medicine and just how forward-looking everybody was, this was an amazing place. One thing that in academia that I couldn't achieve was the ability to truly help people now. I was building robots to help people with physical and neurological disorders, but then I wasn't doing it for them right now. I was writing papers, I was writing grants, and then painting the picture of the future, and it didn't feel right. I just, I had this itch that I couldn't scratch. So that really became a transition. I was like, how can I build something for people now? And when the Silicon Valley started to call, it was initially Google, I thought, maybe this is the place I can actually learn to build something for people now. What was that experience like helping to start up Google X? <laughs> it was an incredibly fun uh, experience, I would say. I, um, it was, you know, so Google X was started originally with the idea that Google can't survive forever with search and ads. They wanted to get into hardware. How can they actually pivot, start new project um, to really get in it? So you know, the while now Waymo was in there, you know, um, Glass, all you know, lots of projects were around there. I was also looking to robotics, medical, a lot of things that has spun out of there that has become something that has been killed. Lots of great stories about how they died as well. Um, the idea was very much of a fail fast, and then try to create something that's. Uh, pivotal for the next 10 to 15 years. It was an incredible experience. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and you ended up having an experience at Apple as well. What was the difference? How would you compare and contrast the ways that Apple and Google worked? Because you mm. saw these companies firsthand in a leadership position from a technical standpoint. You saw the inner workings of both of these companies at really interesting moments in their histories. How would you compare them and contrast them? Ooh, okay. Um, hopefully I can do this in a non, I don't know. Oh, offensive you know, way. Okay, so let me tell you my perception of those two companies um, is that, so what's amazing about Apple to me is this structure that Steve Jobs created. It is a functional organization at mass that is working. And then because of this structure, it is the top-down structure that works beautifully. And it's so design-oriented that they are able to produce beautiful user-first products over and over and over. Google is like, just turn that upside down, right? So it's a lot more about bottom-up innovation. You know, 20% projects, you're allowed to do something fun on the side of your job while you're getting paid. So lots and lots of innovations happening. Sometimes innovations are very similar and they don't even know each other because the company's so big. And then they ship those things. And sometimes like, wait, Gmail and Gmail and Gmail, like what happened? <laughs> Yet because of that ability to just create and innovate and excite people inside, they can create a lot of amazing things too. So I think they have, because of the company structure, how to innovate and then how to ship things and what comes out of it feel very different. Am I reading you correctly? Just watching your expressions as you're talking, I think the Google approach may resonate more with you. Am I right? No, I can't say things like that. <laughs> um, no, but uh, I, I, to be honest, I love Google. I love the people there. There are so many amazing people there who should be also doing startups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that actually plays, obviously, into to what you're doing now. Um, I, I, I'm curious, from your experience in Silicon Valley, were there key elements that you learned from those organizations that you're bringing to your startup, Johanna? And, and we will, we'll, we'll get into it as well. But mm -hmm. I'm just curious, at a high level, which of those principles are you applying to your own leadership of a startup? Yeah. Um, you know, I think maybe I got a little greedy, but... I've gone back and forth between startups and in large companies. And then coming from academia, I was trying to always look a few years ahead. And when I was at a large company, I knew that I could achieve scale, but things moved really slow and not everything was something where I wanted to go. It was sort of the large you know, ecosystem of all kinds of other things happening and then you kind of had to fit in it and then you had to wait till everything else kind of lined up and then I move a little bit. But scale was there. And in a startup, like place like Nest, was you know just you built your own destiny. You go here and run as fast as possible, and very different way. But the scaling after that is a lot of work. Um, I wanted both, <laughs> so I thought, how could I achieve? And then Google X was a great experience as well, really teaching me like how can we innovate in a large company in a successful way. So what I'm you know what I wanted to do, and then what I have access actually successfully built right now is a hybrid of a large company scale that I can't take advantage of, but a freedom to really create this innovation that themselves can't necessarily do, but a startup can do. See the show notes on this episode for a link to a story about Johanna, the new personal assistant subscription service that Yoki Matsuoka and her team launched, starting in Seattle as an independent Panasonic subsidiary. 
For online access to the full videos of every GeekWire Summit 2021 session on demand, you can purchase a virtual ticket at geekwire.com summit to watch at your convenience. Coming up, a highlight from new Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Here's part of my conversation with new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy this week at the GeekWire Summit. Let's get the lay of the land for where you are right now in your role and get some insights into Amazon. What are your top priorities, Andy, in your first year here as Amazon CEO? Well, you know, I, I, I've been at Amazon for about 24 and a half years so far, I've been very lucky and feel very fortunate to have been part of the adventure. And I also feel fortunate to be starting this new gig at a time when the company's doing all right. You know, we have a number of businesses that are doing pretty well. If you, you know, if you look at our retail business, you know, it's a pretty big business, and yet our retail business is 1% of the worldwide retail market segment. You know, yeah, 40% and, and, of U.S. e-commerce sales. Yeah, but we, don't, we compete in the worldwide retail market segment. So, you know, that's, we're 1% of that and 4% of the U.S. So, you know, we have, I think, an opportunity to, to continue to grow that. And if you look in AWS, uh, you know, it's a, about a $60 billion revenue run rate at this point, and yet... The cloud really only constitutes about 4 or 5% of the um, worldwide global IT spend. We have an advertising business that's continuing to grow and an entertainment business and our Alexa business. We have a, you know, a lot of businesses that are, you know, that are growing and have a chance to be significant. And we have a, a, a number of altogether new businesses that we're working hard. I mentioned Kuiper a second ago, but if you look at things like Zooks, which is our you know, autonomous vehicle uh, ride hailing effort or some of the things we're working on in healthcare around pharmacy and telemedicine. I mean, we have, we have a lot happening right now. And I would say that, the, you know, I get asked a lot about how will the mission change um, now that I'm doing this role. And, you know, the reality is that the mission has been the same in the 24 and a half, 24 and a half years I've been there, which is, you know, we really exist to help customers uh, and make their lives easier and better every day and to relentlessly invent to do so. And when I remember when we started AWS, we started working on it in 2003 and we released it into the, into the market in 2006, a lot of people said, are you changing your strategy? You know, are you moving away from being a consumer business and a retail business and instead, you know, starting to be a B2B or an enterprise technology company? And that wasn't the way we thought about it at all. At that point, we just saw a customer set whose lives we could make better. You know, these were developers and enterprises who we found were spending 80% of their time on the undifferentiated heavy lifting of infrastructure. So this is things like data centers and servers and hardware and infrastructure software like compute and storage and database. And they really wanted to flip that equa equation. They wanted to spend 80% of their time on what differentiated their product or what they were working on as opposed to the infrastructure. And that's what we tried to build with AWS. And I think it's why we've built a successful business is it really makes customers' lives much easier and better. 
every day. And so we have loads of priorities in every single one of the businesses. You know, in our retail business, you can look at over the, in the pandemic, we grew about two to three years worth in, in 18 months, which has created all kinds of challenges, including figuring out how to double our, our fulfillment center footprint um, that we built the first 25 years and double it in 18 months and trying to catch up with the demand around shipping speed, which we're, you know, we're making a lot of progress. But we have, I can run through every single one of the businesses and we have a number of priorities. But at the end of the day, the focus and the mission are the same, which is we're trying to make customers' lives easier and better every day and relentlessly invent to do so. So I hear what you're saying, that there's clearly potential for even more growth. But if you look at what's happened in the just the course of your tenure over the past nearly 25 years, as you say, you joined in May 1997. And I was looking back at some of the IPO filings. That was the month that Amazon yeah, went three weeks before we went public. Yeah. It was also the month that Barnes & Noble filed the lawsuit over the Earth's biggest bookstore claim. I, actually, I think it's kind of interesting that back then Amazon was trying to say how big it was and uh, state that it was the Earth's biggest bookstore. And here you are, you know, I'm telling you, yeah, you're 40% of U.S. e-commerce. And you're saying, no, it's only 1% of global retail. So I think it obviously uh, depends on the context there. But if you look at the way Amazon has grown, 1.3 million employees hundreds of millions of Alexa devices, 600 physical retail stores, uh, and somewhere in the realm of 200 million Amazon Prime members. Amazon owns Whole Foods, Twitch, Audible, Ring, Zappos. As you say, you're launching your own satellites. And as we found out last week, you've been working for years on your own home robot in secret. What do you say to people who are concerned about the sheer magnitude of Amazon's presence and influence in our lives and in the world today? Well, I think the you know the first thing is just trying to ground yourself in uh, what the reality is with respect to how large we are in the market segments in which we operate. You know, and, and um, you know I, we talked about in retail. If you you know we compete, we have a global business, so we compete with the worldwide retail market segment, and eighty five percent of retail remains in physical stores. You know, so we have 1% of the worldwide global retail market. We have in AWS where, you know, we have a big business, but still only 4 or 5% of global IT spend is in the cloud. And then we have a share of that cloud space. We still, again, probably about, you know, 1% to 2% of the market segment share in global IT. You know, entertainment, we're, you know, we, we have an entertainment business, but we're really small with respect to the total entertainment business. And they, I kind of stepped through each of these and we have a relatively small share of each of those market segments. So that's just kind of grounding ourselves in what's real. It seems like a lot to people because we're doing we're in a lot of different customer experiences. And I think the second thing is that you have to look at in each of the areas in which we do business, why are customers choosing to use us? And you know, I think you, again, you can start in the retail space. It is wildly competitive in retail. I mean, there you know, people start to think about areas that you know tend to have anti-competitive pieces um, when a provider can raise pricing in an unfettered way without any reprisal. And that is not the case in the retail business. This is why you keep seeing us consistently taking our prices down, which is if our prices aren't sharp for customers, they have a lot of choices and they choose to go elsewhere. And that is true in all our businesses. And so the reason that I think people are choosing to use Amazon across a number of different businesses and customer experiences is what we've built for them. If you have a mindset that starts with the customer 
And then all the strategies and tactics evolve backwards from there. And where your mission is to make customers' lives better and easier every day, you tend to build great customer experiences that people gravitate toward. And I think that's why they're using us in a number of areas. And then I, I think you also have to look at, do you trust the company? Has the, has the company done right by customers? Um, is the service great? Do they prioritize customers? They keep taking pricing down whenever they can. They keep adding um, value um, for, for customers. And uh, are they careful with customers' data, which you know I think we've been very good stewards of customers' data. And so you know, I think those are all things you think about with respect to um, how you think about Amazon. And I, I think if you, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that, that people have done that show that customers in, in lots of different businesses really love Amazon for, for what we do for them. I think there's no dispute that Amazon has put customers first and in many cases done right by those customers. I think the bigger issue on the question of trust, which you bring up, and the reason that folks out there would want some assurances from you, speak in part to the new leadership principles that you have, and, and that is a greater awareness of the impact on constituencies beyond customers, uh, employees and vendors, third-party resellers. I recognize that you've come out with the new leadership principles to be Earth's best employer and to, to aspire to be that and also to recognize the impact of Amazon more broadly. But how can you assure people or, or can you assure people that you're actually going to take that beyond mere words into action to, to recognize the impact of Amazon, for example, on, on employees and on your warehouse workers? Well, I think, look, at the end of the day, uh, everybody, you know, you, you believe people based on their track record and what they do over a long period of time. I mean, I, I remember in the very earliest days of AWS, we would often ask as a team, how can we convince enterprises and governments to trust that they can be secure and that they will have the right reliability running on top of AWS? And no matter what we promised customers or prospective customers, you had to prove it over a long period of time, which is what, what we've done, which is why AWS has, has succeeded to date. And so I think the same is true here. You know, I think that we, um, you know, we've always um, believe that it was important to have Amazon be the place that employees wanted to work. We always took that as a as kind of a given. But at the same time, I think that um, we wanted to add a leadership principle that put it front and center, that made us ask the question as a leadership team constantly, are we creating a place that people want to work and that people can have a great long-term career here? And you know, I think that um, it's very important to me, it's very important to the leadership team, and it's important to the company, and I think there's a lot of things that we've done well there, and I think there are other things that we can do better, you know, and, and so, you know, I think that, um, you know, and I think when, when you look at a leadership principle like uh, success and scale brings broad responsibility, that was very much um, in part because we're, we're acknowledging the fact that as we get larger, we have a bigger impact on the world, and it's why we built the Climate Pledge, which is really to be carbon zero by um, 2040, 10 years ahead of Paris. And, um, you know, it's, we've got about 200 companies that have signed on to that. We're making a lot of progress. It's why we built the $2 billion housing equity fund that we started to really provide affordable housing in the communities in which we have a big presence. But we also wanted that leadership principle to remind the company, everybody in the company, that as you get larger, you're going to get more scrutiny. And... If you operate in such a way that when the scrutiny comes, you'll feel proud of it, 
then you're going to probably be okay. And that's what we've tried to do over the last, you know, it's in the 24 and a half years I've been there, but we've really been talking about this notion that we should expect more scrutiny over the last 10 years. And I think that's why we're operating that way. That was new Amazon CEO Andy Jassy at the GeekWire Summit this week. For online access to see every video from the GeekWire Summit 2021, you can purchase a virtual ticket at geekwire.com to watch on demand. Coming up, entertainer and entrepreneur, Sierra. Welcome back. This week on the GeekWire podcast, we're sharing a few highlights from the 2021 GeekWire Summit. Next up, here is entertainer and entrepreneur, Sierra, a Grammy award-winning artist and accomplished business leader who also happens to be the wife and business partner of Seattle Seahawks quarterback, Russell Wilson. Sierra spoke with GeekWire Managing Editor Taylor Soper, who asked about the larger meaning of her hit song, Level Up. So, Level Up. This is a hit song, got 300 million views on YouTube, but it's not just a song, it's, yeah. it's really a movement. Tell us about Level Up. Yeah, so Level Up is, a, as you said, it is a movement for me and marked a very pivotal point in my career because the whole... I, this is now 17 years since my first album, but majority of my years, I was in a major recording system. And I had this really cool song and this really great vision that I thought was pretty awesome. I really believed in it. And at the time period, I was actually signed to a major recording company. And I remember sitting in the office with the CEO at that time because there were so many changes, so many CEOs in and out, so many A&Rs in and out. And there's this process in the music industry where you have to wait for the approval of that executive to say this song can go out. And for me, it was kind of like a sit and wait. And I'll take it back a step before that. I was eight months pregnant when I was recording this song. And I remember being in the process before signing with Warner Brothers, which is a record company I was signed to at that time. And when I, when I learned I was pregnant, I was, a little, I was a little scared because we weren't finalized, my deal wasn't finalized. And I was like, okay, what is this going to mean? I, in our industry, I think they're going to be like, well, does she want to just be a football wife? Does she want to just like, she's changing up her whole thing. Like, what is it going to be? This is my third baby. They're probably gonna be like, what is going on? Maybe they want to do, do the deal. And by God's grace, my good friend Monty Olson, who was the anchor at that time, said, I believe in you. We're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Let's go forward. And I began to record the album. Level Up was one of those songs that I recorded, and I was dancing around eight months pregnant, having the time of my life. <laughs> um, and I had that song. And so, again, I had a great vision for it, believed in it. Um, baby Sienna at that time was born, and I had that process to enjoy her. But then I was ready to get back out and start rocking again. Um, so I had this song, sat down with the executive at the time, and I said, this is what I want to do um, with this song. This is the visual I have for it, et cetera. And they didn't see the vision that I had in the song. And... I will tell you that's the best thing that could have happened to me in that moment because I always said, if I get the opportunity to run my own company and to have my own label, I'm going to do it and I can't wait because I was so exhausted but waiting for the opinion of someone to say if I can do something or if I can't or if it's going to be hot or if it's not. And I'm a big believer that when you have a vision for what you believe in and what you're doing, you go after it. And every time, like they say, trust your gut. Every time in my career from the first single goodies, when I've said I believe in this song and a record in a certain way, you can feel it in your soul. It's always worked for me. And so this moment was no different. And he didn't see the vision. He had, we didn't see eye to eye. And so at that very moment, I started my own company, Beauty Marks Entertainment. I asked for my master's back and they gave him back to me gratis. <laughs> so I was like, okay, come on. This is all, it was starting off really well and I'll never look back. Level Up was the first song that I put out under my label imprint, my entertainment company, Beauty Marks Entertainment. 
which houses all of my um, companies on the music side and, and a little bit more. Um, and then I put out Level Up, and as you mentioned, it was my first platinum single, first release under my label imprint, and I went platinum. And now, as you mentioned, over a billion plus um, impressions to date, um, or a little bit more than that. I don't really care so much about the numbers, but <laughs> um, it's just been a blessing. And, and I'll tell you, there's no greater feeling than being able to you know, run the ship, to be able to make my decisions. And also, I've been able to create a team you know, that I know will be honest with me, that has my back, and it's everyone that I've handpicked, which is important. So I really believe you're, just as, you're, not, you're not good without the team. You're just as good as your team. And so, you know, we don't always agree in my team, but I like that, you know, but I know that they're honest. I know they care. And so Level Up marks a very special moment in my, my career and in my life. And you mentioned the word process, and you've done that in music and dance and performance hundreds of times. Talk about that creative process and then comparing that to that, the creative process you go through to start a company. Yeah, well, a gut is a gut. Right, your gut is the same gut whether it's creatively or business-wise. I think the greatest thing for me, or I would say the biggest differentiator, is that the artist in my mind just thinks creative, and then there's this business part of my mind that kicks in and thinks budget. So, <laughs> artists, creativity, and budget sometimes doesn't mix mix for us artists because we're just like we just want to put out the vision that we want to, you know, and the visual that we want to, and so there is that fine line and balance. But I'd say the greatest the, the, the greatest um, you know, fact that, that you, you feel the difference is the technical side of it, it is the budget. And then there is this part of like, okay, again, my mind's not just wired in one space. It's not just thinking creative. I'm having to factor in the back end side of it all. And then I do have to really be disciplined, which is, I've, I think I've gotten pretty good now. <laughs> but that took time over the years to find some discipline in the process because you're like, this is what I believe. And I was an artist that if a label gave me a certain amount of money for a budget, I'd put some more into it if I wanted to. Like, I've always believed in investing in me. I'm like, if I'm going to bet on one horse, I'm going to bet on this horse. And every time, that's my attitude. But I say the greatest difference on the back end is that you know, you kind of remove, you have to factor in the creative process because I am a creative person, but there's really a bit, I'm a bit more heavier on the business and the back end side of it all than I would be if I was just an artist. That is Grammy award-winning artist Sierra speaking with GeekWire managing editor Taylor Soper this week at the GeekWire Summit. For online access to the full videos of every GeekWire Summit 2021 session on demand, you can still purchase a virtual ticket at geekwire.com summit to watch at your convenience. Thanks for listening to GeekWire. Kurt Milton edits and produces the show. Daniel L.K. Caldwell wrote and performed our theme music. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of GeekWire.